talk about revolution that's going a little bit too far. So love me, love me, love me. I'm a liberal. Hello, and welcome to More Like the Worst Wing. I'm your host, Stu. And I'm Dave. And that's Dave. We're discussing the third episode of Aaron Sorkin's seminal TV show, The West Wing, today. And who boy, is there a lot of shit going on in this one. It's a doozy. This one entitled A Proportional Response. And uh, let's just kick off with a summary of the episode. Go ahead. So there just is a lot of stuff happening in the administration this time around. It starts off with a continuation of the plot point from the last two episodes where Sam Seaborn, Deputy Communications Director's relationship with the, we've found out, call girl Lori is continuing to ruffle some feathers among the team. CJ and Josh are fighting about it. And I think, Mm -hmm. Dave, you said that he kind of like, he, he shows his hand. Yeah, well, they get, in, they get into a drag-down insult match, and I would actually love to play the clip here of... We're overreacting. Am I? Yes. As women are prone to do. That's not what I meant. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. It's always what you mean. You know what, CJ? I really think I'm the best judge of what I mean, you paranoid Berkeley shiksa feminista. Well, that was way too far. No, no. Well, I've got a staff meeting to go to, and so do you, you elitist Harvard fascist, missed the dean's list two semesters in a row, Yankee jackass. What they exactly call each other, because it's pretty spot on for both characters, I think. And then, so Josh's Berkeley shiksa feminista thing is just, like, really telling, um, where it's like, oh, okay, so when the gloves are off, he just goes... For- goes for the easy sexist like <laughs> thing and uh, i do like though that cj gets the last word which on this show is shorthand for i'm right so yes. and she is right throughout this plot line <laughs> i would i'd like to plant that idea in the listener's mind right now that cj is completely right throughout this entire call girl plot line yeah and frankly you know um it, it serves as a bit of a precedent to show that i mean in the theoretical perfectly functioning team of the administration this is cj's milieu and Correct. her specialty and it frankly and she's it damn good be, at it and she's extremely good at it right so that that's i actually do like this bit and you know what it's actually funny it's the first time i laughed out loud while watching this show for the reasons that the show wanted me to laugh uh, so after that, we then we shift back to our other major plot for this episode, which is the response to Morris, the, uh, well, I'm sorry, what's the McBain's partner's name again? Oh, the Mendoza. Uh, no, no, the partner's name. Excuse me. His name is Scoey. Scoey, yes. Uh, the <laughs> Scoey, uh, who, who was shot down, uh, and got, and Bartlett need to, uh, smack them down with the fury of God's own thunder. Yeah, so um, he starts off obsessing some more about this, you know, this shot down plane, and mm-hmm. we get a first glimpse of some of the dynamic that is, and this is intended to establish this dynamic of Leo, his chief of staff, being sort of the consummate professional because he controls mm-hmm. his ass and implies that the president is sort of taking this very seriously and personally by juxtaposing the president calling the plane being shot down him. As a stand-in for Morris Tulliver versus, right. you know, 
it the plane full of other civilians. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Bartlett is definitely focusing too much on the one guy he knows, of, which is, of course, a human thing here. And then Leo is, like you said, juxtaposed as basically, he's the guy with military experience, whereas Bartlett is a civilian. Uh, and that's clearly the focus of this episode, is that Bartlett doesn't know a way around the military stuff at all. So then we go on sort of an extended walk and talk, uh, and Toby, you know, discovers some news and is walking around and sort of artfully starts to dig in on this guy, Senator Bertram Cole, Mm -hmm. who I think we learned last episode has been uh, sort of functionally threatening the president um, by implying that if he comes down to campaign in his district, he may not get out of Harlan alive. Right, um, which is a weird attack, but whatever. Uh, and this guy is supposedly a Democrat as well, so we're we're assuming he's just like an ultra blue dog, and he has to play up this rhetoric to his conservative base. I guess is the assumption. Yeah, and I think it's it's not exactly the the biggest plot point, but it is not there. Really. It's there to to teach us about Toby being like, this is how you get shit done, clever. man. Yeah, being clever. Yes, yes, it's there to it's there for Toby to have a nice clever moment where he kind of leaks this thing about the Secret Service investigating this guy, and then the press picks up on it and makes it a huge story, even though he didn't really say anything. Yeah, and you said something about um, I want you to talk about this, where it's um, Toby is upset about this incident, but it oh, the sure. incident okay, itself, so, yeah, yeah. So the incident itself, where you know, this guy basically imply threatens the president by just saying like, ah, oh, he might not make it out. It's uh, very similar to a 2008 moment when Hillary and Obama were still fighting the primary together. And Hillary had a fairly solid lead at this point and was saying that Obama should drop out be- or because God forbid he get Robert Kennedy, AKA assassinated <laughs> while running for office. Uh, not so. at all subtle. Yeah, just keep that. It just struck me as, wow, what an odd, oddly prescient thing. Yeah. Um, I, <laughs> I did have a note that just said, wow, these suits, because throughout, <laughs> throughout Josh, we see Josh Lyman here, somewhat disheveled looking. And my, my the thing I wrote down was, he's dressed like a khaki Franciscan or a <laughs> London Fog Inquisitor. <laughs> Both, yeah, both very good. The color of his suit here is something to behold. Um, and also, just it's very weird that Josh is supposed to be like the handsome or sexy one on the show half the time, where like you know, girls, college girls come up and go, "Oh my God, you're Josh Lyman!" Teehee. And like, this is a show with Rob Lowe on it, and he's the hot one. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, you've got options for for appeal to. Yeah, the, the, the teen girls are going to be coming up saying, like, where's the deputy communications director? <laughs> Brad, Bradley Whitford, I love you. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. His hair, too. Like, I, there's just no excuse. Like, I get 90s and fashion weren't a great decade, but hair, whoo. Jeez, woof. Anywho, um, going on from there, we get uh, CJ and Sam finally spar off about the call girl issue. Uh, and Sam... Uh, basically comes at it from the side of like, hey, it's no, it's not the public's business what my personal life is, which is, of course, incredibly naive for someone who works <laughs> so high up in the White House. Well, uh, CJ correctly calls him out on how incredibly naive he has been, because as I said, CJ remains right throughout this entire episode, and Rob Lowe acts like a big old baby. 
big old baby. And you know, we've been we've been spending a lot of time devoted to saying that the the takes on this issue of the you know the treatment of a sex worker at this time was somewhat progressive and I, I don't think those two perspectives are incompatible with each other because, no. frankly, it is it is quite naive to believe that you can just, in in the milieu of American politics and the the Overton window being where it is, twenty years ago, much less today, um, you can't just pal around with someone who bears that s- so much stigma. Right, and like it's it's painfully naive what Sam thinks he you know he doesn't understand that. He, he understands on a deeper level that his job has certain responsibilities that other jobs don't have, but he hasn't fully internalized that lesson, apparently. Or he's just tricking himself because he really, really likes this girl. But again, they haven't spent that much time together, so for him to be that hung up on her seems weird. Yeah, it's somewhat incongruous with him being a, I mean, you know, reputed to be just a, an all-star, you know, super intellectual and dynamite rock star political operative, and all of a sudden he's just head over heels to the point of risking his career for this girl he spent an evening with. Maybe right. two. Maybe two evenings. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, uh, to go back to the military plot, uh, at this point, the uh, generals and the Joint Chiefs, they lay out Bartlett's options, you know, of proportional responses, which is where we get our episode title from. Uh, and Bartlett immediately eschews them all as being not violent and deadly and war crimey enough <laughs> yeah so there's this thing and he's just immediately out the gate he's like what are we doing here it, you know they they blew up a goddamn plane you know what we gotta we gotta hit him back and hit him back hard mm-hmm. and 10 times hard and it's just we it's supposed to be they're it's, they're straddling this line of righteous anger versus mm-hmm. like you know responsible engagement in global politics now uh, we will, I mean, we'll play the clip of it for you here. His first, like, uh, I guess, curious entreaty to the generals is that mm-hmm. what, why are we doing a quote unquote proportional response? Sir, it's immediate. It's decisive. It's low risk. And it's a proportional response. Someday someone's going to have to explain to me the virtue of a proportional response. <laughs> and and fooled you guys because that's fucking Michael Douglas. This scene is repeated verbatim from the movie The American President. <laughs> and not only do we get the same dialogue from Mr. President, which is Michael Douglas in that movie, mm-hmm. Martin Sheen, the actor, is physically in the room and you can hear his voice <laughs> in that scene in The American President. <laughs> It's, it's, wow, same writer in everything. Yeah, it's just... literally shopping the West Wing in movie form three years before it got optioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we get more and more of the military subplot. Uh, the, you know, Fitz Wallace, who is chief joint chief, essentially, um, comes back to him saying, like, okay, fine, we took away those pansy proportional response options, and we here's a war crime for you. <laughs> and he, he, he lays it out, and I really do love how Fitzwallace just completely lays out, like, this is insane, you're going, you're the, we're the world's biggest superpower, and if you do something like this without a coalition of other Western countries, uh, you are going to f- get insane pushback from everywhere else in the world. He's just, he's really detailing out that this is 
very, very, very dumb. Do you really <laughs> want to let your anger let you do something this dumb? Yeah, and he and I, I think that hopes hopefully hits home with the president a little. Yeah, well, and he lays he lays it out, and he fit, I think I don't know if he asked the question or he literally just says civilian casualties in the thousands, mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's it is a minor detail at this because we are meant to take this as a um, these scenes of these interactions are meant to lay out sort of the internal struggle that the president right. they're a metaphor for the the president discovering these responsibilities and navigating these nuances in real time but there is a point where Martin the Jed Bartlett literally asks for a cigarette lights up a cigarette while mm-hmm. like ordering this strike to be made and so they're right. literally culturally juxtaposing this with post orgasm like this was a sex scene and now i'm sitting there smoking my cigarette right that's definitely the unfortunate implication of what's going on here and you know like the famous carlin bit you know all the bombs and everything are all shaped like dicks i don't know why they are but they have to be (laughs) yep you know and oh baby was it good for you dead syrians uh, actually, well, they actually don't kill anyone because he does end up going with the proportional response, and they bomb some place that's abandoned. Yeah, and it's um, it's hard military targets, or whatever they say. Right, right. And so we end up kind of just we we move out of the the military thing briefly, you know, talking with Sam Seaborn, and I have another note here that said the um the name of the reporter that a new character named Danny Kincannon uh, confides to CJ that has um, a hold of the Sam Seaborn sex worker story, story or tip. Right. The name he gives is Maggie Greenwald. Now our fellow C spammers may be very aware of these people, but Maggie Haberman, who's now at the New York times and basically has exclusive access to the president these days was just starting in New York City as a political reporter on a like a local urban beat. And at this time, Glenn Greenwald was a lawyer busy defending white supremacists. So <laughs> this was an eerily sort of precious, prescient, excuse me, like perspective on future media contacts. It's an, it's an odd coincidence, and I have to wonder if it's intentional at all. Yeah. Um, so uh, one major subplot we've kind of forgotten is throughout all of this, while the chaos of the military thing is going on, the staffers are kind of freaking out because, like, they know they know something big is happening, but, you know, only the people with top act code word clearance can actually find out what the military part is. Um, but meanwhile, in the uh, on, on the other time, we are in interviewing a brand new character for the show, Charlie Young. Charlie Young. Uh, Charlie Young comes in for the bike messenger job. Uh, and gets noticed as a potentially talented young man who's better suited to be the president's body man, essentially. You know, his gopher, you know, hands him stuff, gets him stuff, accompanies the president basically 24 hours a day, um, you know. And uh, there's a, so they interview him. Um, there's some funny beats here where he's overly deferential and Josh keeps trying to get him to calm down. Like, you don't have to call me, sir, relax, uh, stuff like that. That's kind of cute. Uh, but we'll get back to Charlie's plot uh, when we can discuss that more on its own time. Yeah. But basically, uh, it kind of resolves interestingly at the end of the episode. Yeah, and, and we'll do a quick segue eventually. Mandy shows up again yeah. for reasons. Yeah, a really weird scene that feels super out of place because Mandy has nothing else to do with the rest of the episode at all. 
Uh, her and Josh just talk for a bit to establish that they used to date. She gives Josh a picture with his face scrawled out in magic marker as, like, a cute gift or something. Very weird. It just kind of comes out of nowhere and then goes. Yeah, it's it's sort of like, the, I feel like it's the show testing the waters for a, a, a romantic subplot of, of this Quite nature. Possibly. where the, Where there's conflict within the administration, sort of. Um and then we move away from Mandy, and the, the culmination of the episode is the president is giving an address to the country to announce the fact that he has pursued this military option against Syria. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a little bit of a, a tangle with Charlie at the beginning where he basically he brushes him off when he solves one of his problems. And then Leo pulls him aside before he starts the address, essentially to talk his ass back down again. And Right. Because he's very angry, uh, angrier than usual. He's kind of snapping at everyone, which is, you know, unusual for the Bartlett we've seen so far in the show. Yeah, absolutely. And so then we we just, and this really, like, it, it this scene bothers me because it's just it's the pacing gets fucked up again. And we see all this weird emotion come out of both characters that is completely incongruous with how they've been portrayed to us so far. Now, if it's scripted to be like that, where it's saying hey, these two are alone, so it's cool, they can kick back and relax and stuff, but it does not work well in that regard, particularly given the substance and, like, what they're discussing, you know, in the, in their private dialogue or whatever. But we'll discuss that a little bit, you know, down the road. Sure, yeah, we can dig more into that later. So then finally, uh, it's, this ends with uh, the president doing his address and uh, officially hiring Charlie Young as his assistant. Um with a very, very gross thing of uh, they research and they find out his mom was a cop who recently got shot on the line uh, six months ago, approximately. And uh, Bartlett, you know, they do a little research and they find out the exact bullet that killed her. Bartlett name drops this bullet and gun, implies that they're going to try to ban it soon, uh, and that this is a reason that Charlie should come to work for him. So we're going to dig into Charlie a little bit more, um, but that's the substance of the episode. There was a lot going on. I apologize. The segment goes kind of long this time around just because we're, yeah, it was totally necessary. We're tying together a lot of things. So let's talk about Charlie. Charles Young, a.k.a. Charlie. uh, He comes in for the bike messenger interview, gets noticed because he's very talented, he has good grades, stuff like that, lots of extracurriculars, presumably. He's got a fancy enough resume, and he seems like a good enough guy that they say, okay, screw the bike messenger thing, we're more marking this kid for personal aid to the president, also known as a body man. Yeah, it's also really interesting on the resume, they point out immediately that he's not going to go to college. Correct, yeah. How'd they know? Um, or, I, uh, well, Josh says, why aren't you in college? Yeah, I, I yeah, and I assume that it's... Yeah, it's just that he's the the age that's on his resume, and he doesn't have a degree right. on there somewhere. So, I, presumably, although you know he could be in college and applying. Um, but regardless, you know they they explained the job to him, saying like, "Look, you're basically the president's gopher. Uh, Twenty hour days are not uncommon, according to Josh, uh, which is crazy because I'm assuming uh, they do not pay him overtime, um, and." Then uh, they also kind of have this internal debate freak out after they've, after they've actually interviewed him. And there is a really funny bit during the interview here where Sam comes in and says, uh, hey, you going to overthrow the government? You know, because that's what they have to ask him. 
You ever tried to overthrow the government? No, sir. What the hell's been stopping you? On the forums, and he goes, no. And Sam goes, well, what the hell's stopping you? <laughs> like, that's good. <laughs> that's a good little bit. I always love some interview awkward humor, uh, having gone through many awkward interviews myself. Um, Not but, the question uh, you hear all the time. <laughs> yeah. But, uh... What's uh, so after they decide, you know, internally, like, okay, this is our guy. Josh then has sort of this like minor freak out about, you know, oh, isn't it going to look weird for a white president to have a black assistant running around opening the door for him and stuff, uh, which is stupid as hell. Yeah, it's kind of. I mean, you can tell that. Uh, I mean, honestly, the exposure you've had to his character at this point leads you to believe that Josh has a pretty puckered butthole. And right. sure enough, this sort of series of scenes pretty much confirms that fact. Um, he's just full of white guilt and like, right. a, like a gross kind of white guilt about the Charlie right. Young issue. Right. We're just like assuming the worst case scenario, like in mentally or something. And I do think it's interesting that it's Josh who points it out, because if it, it was a real publicity problem, you think CJ would be the first to speak up about it, because that's her role. Yeah, heck, or that's even... Her, her gig, or Toby, or Sam, because they do communications. Yeah, even, I was going to say, even Sam, and we have Sam talking to the character directly and he's totally fine about it yeah he did he clearly hasn't crossed his mind at all because of course not he just cares if the kid is qualified or not which and about the ladies anyone should care about <laughs> right well he, he cares a lot about one lady for right now <laughs> that's good um so then josh brings this up to leo first uh, and Leo's like, who the hell cares? Which is, of course, the right response. Then he brings it up to Fitz Wallace, since Fitz Wallace is black. He's like, okay, well, if I ask a black guy, then I can get ultimate clearance on it. That's right, I get a pass. Uh, so, right. <laughs> so he goes to ask his one black friend, and Fitz Wallace is like, look, are you going to, you know, treat the kid fairly? You know, I open the door for the president. Like, everyone in this building opens the door for the president. Like, stop freaking out about it. And uh, so finally, Josh can unclench his butthole just a fraction of a percent uh, and agree to hire Charlie Young as the president's body man. Yeah. Um, and there, at the end of the episode, we have gotten these, like, little bits of information about Charlie's life and what has brought him here. And the biggest thing that they mention is that Charlie's mother had been a DC policeman um, right. for some time. And there is presumably this, her entire career, I'm guessing. Yes. And that, that, that she was shot and killed in the line of duty relatively recently, which is why he's reluctant to initially broach the subject as correct. You know, yeah, any you regular person clearly, yeah. Clearly still shaken up about it, obviously. Yeah. It's his only parent as well. His dad has been absent, of course. Yeah, because that's not at all a, a trope in <laughs> right. this case. Um, but they also do a thing where um, at the, in the final kind of the, the penultimate scene of the episode, Charlie, in, in what's essentially a walking confirmation of him getting the job, mm-hmm. heads into this, um, this public address that the president's doing. And in you know, a, a snap of deductive reasoning bullseyes where the president's missing reading glasses are. And Which is, yeah. Yeah. And, to, to prove his competence, essentially. Yeah, and, and, and they tell him where it is, and the president essentially just brushes his, like, he brushes him off. 
Um, you know, he's like, oh, I'm too fucking busy for new people or, or whatever. <laughs> exactly. And, and, you know, this is Charlie's first interaction with the guy. So he's like, wow, this you can it's and it's unspoken. But his reaction is like, wow, this kind of blows. Right. <laughs> like, I don't want this job. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is my boss. <laughs> and then the really kind of the, the gross thing about this is that those two pieces of information, dead cop mom and treated poorly by president, then get smashed together at the end of the episode where Jed just kind of, it also it almost seems uncharacteristic. He just steamrolls out the gate of talking to Charlie and he's like, hi, you're Charlie, right? Well, I hear your mom was a cop and she got shot by a certain kind of bullet. And you know what? Since we know that, I'd like to propose some legislation to, to stop those bullets from being available. And this is supposed to mollify Charlie where, again, I'm, I'm lucky enough to have had both of my parents alive for my entire life. And I'm also not a person of color, but it's like, this is so unbelievably patronizing and just right. like stereotypically dismissive. Right. And... It, not only that, I'd also like to mention that, you know, this idea of banning this one bullet from being on the streets is going to fix the problem and not actually solving, like, crime or poverty or anything like that. Um, but not only that, but just, yeah, using this this to not only paper over the rudeness from before, but then to act as, like, a recruiting tool of, like, this will get the kid really on, on board with us is uh is pretty gross yeah it's uh really not that great and it's meant to be this touching moment where like all of a sudden the the president's back on his horse baby it's not bitchy upset about dead friend president bartlett anymore it's getting to work for the common folk president bartlett right yeah that, man, <laughs> yeah it's but that but that's okay yeah but we'll have we'll have yeah. more to say about charlie in the future he he plays an extremely integral role in the series throughout right uh, and uh pr- props to Dulé hill by the way the actor himself does a great job of portraying like scared nervous kid and then like we got to see charlie's comfort grow as we'll see over the next few episodes i think the actor himself does a great job as always we're just dragging the fictional characters here <laughs> yeah. so the principal issue with this episode that we wanted to discuss was just kind of the default neoliberal post-World War II consensus treatment of militarism and the United States position as a superpower. Um, this is almost a, just, just a textbook discussion, but not really having any conclusions about this subject as we talk about, well, some Americans got killed somewhere and these Americans may or may not have been there doing whatever thing, but the answer to this problem is to go and blow some shit up. Right. So at, at the end of the episode, um, Jed has, the president, God, the president, has been, <laughs> the president has been worked up this entire time and clearly is emotionally invested in this, which to be fair, a normal ass person would be because his friend just died. Sure. Um, in an act of terrorism, no sure. less. Or it would be described as terrorism. Um, Absolutely, yeah. So they and they cut. They take him out of the. Leo takes him out of the address, like away from the desk, the resolute desk that's being filmed or set up for TV. Correct. And sits him down in his office and says, 
dude, you got to, you know, get your head on straight or whatever. And it, but it's just, I can appreciate the dramatic device being put to use here, but Mm -hmm. it is just, it becomes bad TV. It is literally like outside of any political perspective on this stuff. What is otherwise a relatively reasonably well executed episode just falls off a cliff in quality as soon as it's just a a, a one-on-one with uh, Leo and the president in his office. Right, and there's a particular moment where it turns too, because the first half of the scene, they're extremely serious and they're talking seriously about the military stuff, and that's fine tone-wise. And if it had kept that tone of the conversation throughout the whole scene, I think the episode ends fine. But there's a flip point where they instantly decide, like, okay, we're done talking about hard stuff, now let's you and me just buddy-buddy and just kind of chat about whatever and laugh it up and and have a good time, and it's the most jarring tone shift I've seen in a while. Yeah, and it's, like, it, it could not have been written to to be executed better. Like, if they if somebody had put in the script, like, now you're not co-workers running the most powerful country on the planet, you're a couple guys joshing each other over beers. Right. It's it's literally that abrupt and that dramatic a shift in tone of their dialogue. And it's like, as, as I mentioned, it's sort of um, if it was intended initially to communicate to the audience that's like, well, these two characters have a personal bond and when they're alone, when they're by themselves, they can kick back and relax and like There's shoot the shit. There's definitely part of that going on here. Yep, they but can shoot the shit. it doesn't quite work, yeah. And it's also, I mean, it's, frankly, it's incongruous with the topic of conversation. You're not there trying to be like, oh, you remember that time on the campaign when I got too drunk and, like, passed out in a bush or whatever, and you had to come rescue me. It's sort of like, well, you're the guy who's been in combat before, and now I'm deciding whether to, A, risk American lives, and B, drop high explosives on, you know, citizens of another nation. Right. In the world. Um yeah, and so the, the the discussion also gets a little gross where we really get to see the, the status quo love on display of just this is the way things are done is ultimately the conclusion of the scene. Yes. And it's why is this the way things are done? Well, that's what our fathers taught us. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just like, well, how does history ever improve? How do people change if they just keep doing the same thing the last fucked up generation taught them to do <laughs> and he yeah, and he even makes a callback you noted it's like he makes a callback to the roman the quis romanus thanks high school latin where it was like oh in the known world a citizen of rome could walk across the country and the be free of be free of danger just by virtue of having that status and it's like i we we're talking about Sam Seaborn being naive about having a relationship with a sex worker yeah. as a public figure. How naive is President Bartlett if he's just like, gosh, I remember those days when there definitely weren't just like, you know, I don't know, Parthian raiders yeah, on whatever road. Women, <laughs> or, you know, whatnot. <laughs> You know, this idea that there was a perfectly safe society at any one point is, of course, ludicrous. You know, you can't, you know... No one lives in a bubble, you know, crime happens, like, <laughs> it's just well, shocking it keeps, in its it naivete. Keeps on, it keeps on coming down the pipe, John McCain, where, like, maybe, I don't know if this is your perspective on it, maybe your fathers were assholes? Yeah, maybe, I'm sorry, what'd you say? 
Um, what do you mean? Like coming your father's, down... your fathers are yeah, assholes. But yeah, yes, definitely. Okay. Their fathers, their fathers were assholes, you know. And just there's there's no like perception of how do we make it less assholey now that we're the fathers. <laughs> and and like if if you're all about this responsibility of your you know country as the most powerful nation on earth or whatever died saturday evening at 81 years old like what are you gonna do it's incumbent upon you to set the tone of that it is basically you have the power to make this not the way things are (laughs) it's you could theoretically just say this is not to brain cancer died the way things that's not how you behave uh right yeah are you are are you all right there what do you mean i'm drinking beers i guess um sorry i just thought you said something about anyway uh but to get you know to bring it all back home it's just essentially is that you know say what you will about senator john mccain at least he had the conviction and dedication to not plaster on the makeup like a trollop you fucking cunt John McCain, resident blood thresher of the United States Senate and high explosives elemental, died Saturday having failed to achieve his lifelong dream of war with Iran. John McCain had only died by flying an A-4 Skyhawk into the canopy of the Cambodian jungle. He would have earned his A status by sinking his fifth plane in the North Vietnamese Air Force. John McCain is survived by a carefully cultivated, entirely artificial reputation as a maverick, a completely empty descriptor which even in the most gung-ho American genocidaire, Wild West interpretation, cannot actually be applied to John McCain in any respect. After a taxpayer-funded battle with cancer afforded by his taxpayer-funded employer, during which he used taxpayer-funded transportation services in a principal fight to die every one of those simple things to millions of constituents, he was likely embarrassed to call fellow citizens. John McCain has finally returned home to that big deck of the USS Forrestal in the sky, hell. And frankly, stony silence is the highest accolade, the most generous possible eulogy that anyone who lays claim to a modern definition of quote-unquote leftist in their politics can by rights afford John McCain. He was a blood-guzzling warhawk who came to the reasonable conclusion after experiencing the literal horrors of war first person, directly, in the Gulf of Tonkin and later being subjected to hideous tortures in a POW camp, that the only humane and normal thing to do was to, I don't know, extend similar opportunities to millions of civilians at home and abroad. Uh, what? I'm well, I'm back. I blacked out. What happened? <laughs> well, um. So anyway, and that does it for the fourth episode of our podcast, dealing with the third episode of the West Wing. Thank you for listening. Thank you for joining us as we discuss the further awful works of Aaron Sorkin. So the next episode has some interesting topics that come up. We're kind of just doing a a scattershot approach in the first season to what would be acceptable political topics um, at the time. And there will be some machinations within the administration. And we, I think, again, the the John Hoynes, the vice president issue, right. rears its ugly head again next time around. Correct. 
Uh, we get some vote whipping, we get some discussion of gun control, uh, all sorts of things that we can uh, springboard off and discuss. And we look forward to you all joining us. Yeah, so please join us next time. Uh, I'm Stu, I'm Gun Show Poopole on the Something Awful forums. If you'd like to email us, the show's email address is theworstwing69 at gmail.com. Nice. Nice. Uh, and I'm Dave, and I'm Wampalord on the forums. Feel free to leave comments in the thread. We love your feedback. And uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye. Just, again, then... the example of the eloquence of Senator Obama. He's health of the mother. You know, that's been stretched by the pro-abortion movement in America to mean almost anything.